Section 17 of Letters from Victorian Pioneers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nemo. Letters from Victorian Pioneers. Letter number 17 from j m clow about thirty miles to the westward of lake hindmarsh lies the large sandy desert through which the boundary line between the victorian and south australian territories runs the most northwesterly tract of pastoral country in the wamira district at that point and forming a bay on the edge of this desert was first occupied under pastoral lease by me in the month of may eighteen forty seven it is of the finest description of sheep country very openly timbered but scantily watered it is dotted with swamps of no great depth but the bottom being of tenacious clay they except in the droughty seasons now contain sufficient water for the wants of the stock since they have been when dry well trodden by the sheep grazing on them i found the sole aboriginal occupants of that isolated tract to be one man of great muscular strength and proportions his three women and two children the custom of each head of a family being by inheritance or conquest the acknowledged proprietor of a certain tract of the territory of the tribe to whose chief he owned allegiance over which the others were understood to hunt by sufferance from him i found to prevail amongst the wimera and lake hindmarsh tribes what i took up as a run was his portion of it although this native whom i shall call geordie his english name as i forget his aboriginal name was apparently on the best of terms with his tribe yet they hinted that it was his prowess not right that maintained him in possession of such a large tract of their territory and more than his share of the women when there were so many without one whereby hangs a tale of the deep treachery which they exercised a few months after my arrival to dispossess him of both and all was so well planned that he did not seem to have the least apprehension of any impending danger one evening some fifteen or twenty men of the tribe arrived at my station from the direction of tatiara whither they stated they had been to procure the rods of a water plant with which they formed the heads of their spears bundles of which they had with them in their crude state and they were on their return to the lake they appeared to be very much fatigued with their day's journey and very soon encamped about three hundred yards from our huts having first prevailed on geordie who was encamped within fifty yards of us to join them at their encampment which he did without reluctance as they showed him a good deal of deference more from the position of lord which his prowess had acquired for him than as vassal to their chieftain who was amongst the number when i saw them lounging round their fires that night they counterfeited their intentions so completely by laughing and joking with each other that i was quite unprepared 
for the tragedy of bloodshed which I witnessed on the following morning. The first shades of daylight were just dawning when the shrieks of the women rang through the forest. On reaching the outside of the hut, I heard that peculiar sound which the men utter when engaged in fighting, when in the act of throwing any of their rude instruments of warfare. As the hour was the one usually chosen by a hostile tribe to make their onslaught of revenge, I concluded that they had been attacked by the Tatiara blacks, who had perhaps followed them up quickly to square a debt of blood with them. By the time that I had dressed sufficiently to go and see the fight, all was hushed except the low wailing lamentations of some women, a sure indication that there lay a corpse. It being yet too dark to see in one tableau their camp and surrounding forest, I made for the wailing. On reaching the group, which consisted of two of Geordie's wives and two or three men who were winding a blanket round a corpse which was lying about halfway between their camp and my hut, the men preserved a determined silence to all my inquiries, and it was from the women that I ascertained the corpse was their late husband, and that he had been murdered by some of the men who had been encamped with him. He had been attacked by nine or eleven men at once, who, springing from their fires, poured their spears into him as he lay awake at his. He jumped from his lair, they said, and made for our huts, snapping the spears which were in his body close by the flesh, as I found to be the case on walking from the corpse to their camp, where the remnants lay on either side of his track. He had got about halfway before he received the mortal wounds from two jagged Mali spears, which now lay alongside of the corpse and were covered with blood from point to tip, from their having been drawn through his body to get them out. As the two spear wounds did not cause instantaneous death, they rushed in with their wadis and gave the finishing stroke to the deed of blood. By the time that the day had dawned, the murderers had decamped, and were then many miles on their way to the lake, impatient to recite to the council of war, which had deputed them to the task the successful termination of the stratagem. Those who remained maintained that they had neither previous knowledge of what was to take place that morning, nor participation in the murder, and the testimony of the women corroborated the statement that they took no part in it. In the small open plain where the corpse lay, we interred it. My men dug a grave, and having secured the top well with stones, to prevent the wild dogs disinterring it, crowned its summit with a murdered man's spears and other instruments of war, which remained there till some sacrilegious white hand removed them. The three women and the orphan children left immediately afterwards. The men told me that it was the custom of their tribe for the women after the death of a husband to secrete themselves in the bush for a week or two, and that after a certain time, a week or two, they become the wives of the first man who finds them. My informant I saw afterwards in possession of one of them. The aborigines in this tract of country subsist chiefly on a variety of roots which are very abundant. Possums, small kangaroos called kama, which frequent the edge of the mallee scrub, an occasional emu, 
the fruit or flower of the stunted honeysuckle, very prevalent in the desert, and mana in the autumn. When the hot weather prevails, birds are easily caught by them in the following manner. They conceal themselves in an arbor of boughs close to the small remnants of surface water, or at wells, and snare the birds by laying a gin attached to the end of a rod, where the birds must or are most likely to stand when they come to drink. Having secured their victim, they draw the rod in, and by having the same snare attached to the end of the rod, they can set it again without leaving the arbor or frightening other birds away by showing themselves. While at this station I made several excursions into the large desert, with the view of discovering new tracts of pastoral country. We first went in a westerly direction. After proceeding about fifteen miles into it, from the side next my run, we came to a steep ridge of sand hills, about two hundred or three hundred feet above the adjacent desert. The surface of them was composed of nothing but loose drift sand, and they were covered with a few stunted bushes. When on the summit, they appeared to be a chain of hills running from where we ascended them northerly as far as the eye could reach. To the westward, we saw nothing but an unbroken expanse for the next twelve or fifteen miles of the same dreary wilderness that lay around us. Some months afterwards, when seventy miles further north, on the course of the Wamera, we again struck a westerly course and encountered the same chain of hills, still possessing the same features, and bearing in the same direction. Interspersed but very distant from each other on this desert are oases of a few acres, where the eucalyptus and other trees grow with a fair sprinkling of grass. As the soil of them is very clayey, it was only on them that we found surface water to drink. The whole eastern extent of it is a loose white sand, covered chiefly with a very prickly grass, which grows in large tufts and is so stiff in the blade that it causes the horse's legs to bleed as they travel over it. Also, with stunted mallee and a very diminutive species of the honeysuckle tree, the flowers of which the natives crush and steep in water, in order to obtain what is to them a sweet and nourishing drink. The emu and the loan are the only birds of size on it. The former frequents the open desert, the latter the mallee thickets. A remarkable feature of the small portion of country I observe to be that it blew a strong fresh breeze both day and night, below which it seldom moderated but occasionally increased to a tornado. One swept along with devastating fury in the month of December the same year. It passed over an outstation, snapping even trees of two and three feet diameter in two, about five or six feet from the ground, and lopping off the boughs of those it did not carry down. The tent in which the men were living was carried off into the swamp about half a mile, and few of the pannikins and plates were found again. It seemed to be confined to about half a mile in width. Owing to the constant current of air, I never saw any dews while there. As most of the Wimera district was settled the year before I went there, I cannot give a correct statement of the deportment of the aborigine 
to the squatters when the latter first took possession of the territory. With regard to Geordie's behavior on the occasion of my taking up the run, he attempted a day or two after our arrival to disarm one of the hut keepers while in the hut with him, but failed, and luckily the man had presence of mind not to shoot him. We saw no more of him for two or three weeks. When he came back, he seemed ashamed of having violated the confidence we had reposed in him, ridiculed his attempt on the hut-keeper, and apparently had made up his mind to have his little territory invaded by the sheep. At shearing time, I found him and the other blacks very useful, placing all the flocks in their charge, as I was obliged from a scarcity of sharers in that out-of-the-way place to employ all the shepherds in shearing the sheep. I never found them to have appropriated any to their own use. I sold this run, which I called Bailrook, from the desert on which it lay, to Mr. George Urquhart in the following December. It has subsequently passed from his hands to Mr. Broughton, the present holder. Its registered extent is fifty square miles. It is bounded by the runs of Major Firebrace, formerly Grants, Mason, and Little. End of section seventeen.